Well, good morning. It is good to have everybody here. Um, and it is good to see some new faces. If you are new, please go ahead and say hey to, to me or to Ben or to anyone else um, after the service. Um, this morning, um, we are continuing Mark, our series through Mark. Last week, we took a little bit of a break because we were gathering with Providence Church, um, with a joint service. And that was a gift. It was a blessing to be able to worship alongside other brothers and sisters in the city who want to see us flourish and want to see the gospel go forward. So that was an encouragement to not only hear that in words, but also to, to see it with actions. Um, but today we're going to pick back up in Mark. And as Luke read, we're in verses, um, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. But before we get there, some, some of the things that I get to experience, some of the joys of being a pastor in the limited amount of time that this plant has existed, is some of the things that I just get to see. And yesterday, being able to, to help John with his deck, I, I get there thinking I'm going to be the only one, and I'm not the greatest with physical labor. Uh, so I thought, you know, John doesn't really know how much he's going to get done with me there. And I pull up, and Alex is there, June is there, Jonathan is there. The night before, a bunch of people got together for um, a game night, and encouraged to see people having others over for dinner, saying, hey, let's get together. It is such a joy to be able to see that, to see disciples being made, to see the church being the church, people building relationships. Danielle and I were the recipients. Someone generously, um, anonymously gave us an Amazon gift card. So thank you so much for that. We are very appreciative. Um, But it's little things like that that make this such a joy. And thank you for the congregation that you all are. Another joy of being a pastor is meeting all, all sorts of undercover Christians. It's funny how many people that I talk to when they ask, what do you do? I try to lead with, I'm a pastor, even though I, I do other things. I try to lead with that and they go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian too. I, I don't like to talk about it much, but, <laughs> but I am. It's kind of keep it to myself and uh, I, don't, I don't really feel like sent out to evangelize or anything like that, but, but yeah, I'm a Christian too. And I'm like, oh, great, that, that's awesome. <laughs> we should talk more about that. Um, it's amazing how often that happens. And it kind of, it kind of begs this question, like, can you, can you really be a follower of Jesus and not be sent by him? Can you really be a follower of Jesus and not proclaim the gospel to those around you? Is evangelism an option? Um, I, will, I will argue today that if we are in Christ, then we are called, we are sent, we are called to place ourselves under his instruction, and we are called to call others to do the same. So if we are truly in Christ, we are called to place ourselves under his instruction and call others to do the same. And so again, we are in Mark this morning. Mark is located in the New Testament. And so if you flip about three quarters of the way through the Bible, you'll find the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the Gospels. If you get to Luke and John, you've gone a little too far. So come back. We are in Mark chapter 6. And if you have a bulletin, it's right there in the middle as well. You can read along with the text. But this book is written by John Mark. He was writing to Christians in the Rome, Rome area. And he was... Uh, writing around the 50s or 60s AD, which is 20 to 30 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. And the theme throughout this book is God restoring his wayward people. 
So we probably sound like a broken record at this point, but we're not even halfway through the book, so you'll hear a lot more too. The theme of the book of Mark is God restoring his wayward people. And previously, prior to this passage, um, we looked at chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Ben did a great job of walking us through that passage, seeing um, Jesus be rejected in his own hometown and the implications of that. And then we saw chapter 5, known as the St. Jude chapter, the chapter of hopeless causes. We see Jesus interacting with these quote-unquote hopeless causes and exercising authority over them and showing that they aren't hopeless. But in fact, Jesus is able to restore them. So we saw that in um, the demoniac, the demon-possessed man. We saw that with Jairus' daughter. And then we saw that with the bleeding woman. And I'm not going to go through all that we've been through in the book of Mark, but we're going passage by passage. And so now we're here in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And it's in this passage where my hope is that we'll see these four points fairly clearly. Sometimes the text um, is kind of difficult to pull points out of. By God's grace, this text has kind of laid out the points very simply um, for us. And so we will look at those and we we will see that Jesus summons his people. Jesus sends his people. He instructs his people and he uses his people. So those are our four points. And before we dive into them, I will pray. God, we come before you grateful grateful for the love that you have shown us in your son, Jesus. And thank you for the gift that we have to be able to gather each Sunday to be reminded of these things. We pray that you would make Jesus known this morning. Magnify Christ. We ask that you would do the same thing in sister churches in the area. Think of Providence Church, who we served and worshiped with last week. Think of Grace Fellowship Church right down the road. Think of Salt and Light Church, where we are grateful for these local churches that are doing the hard work and the enjoyable work of magnifying Christ. We pray for your blessing on them. We pray for your blessing on us as we look at this passage and that it would be clear and that you would show us by your Holy Spirit what it means to be a sent follower of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I said we have four points. Point number one is Jesus summons his people. And so we see right there from the beginning, Mark um, chapter 6 in verse 7, we see Jesus, you can see it in your bulletin or you can turn in your Bibles. Um, He says, or the text says, he summoned the 12. And so I know we just got in, but I also want to take a little pause and say, don't read that too quickly. It is amazing grace that God has called any to himself. He has graciously summoned people to himself. There's the famous hymn by John Newton. I love hymns, by the way. I'm a sucker for hymns. And so I might quote hymns a decent amount, but the very well-known one is Amazing Grace. And it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Recognize in this text, recognize in that hymn, that we don't find God. He finds us. God 
calls us to himself graciously. Romans 3.11, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. No one comes to God apart from him graciously bringing them to himself. And that's, that's the reason for us to rejoice in him, not to um, pat ourselves on the back. It should in, instead increase the, our view of grace. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so right here in the passage, right from the get-go, it's Jesus summoning his disciples. And notice that he summons 12. He summons the 12. So oftentimes we can think um, disciples, apostles, same thing. It's oftentimes referring to the same group of people, but disciple and apostle are are two different things. Disciple is a follower, and apostle is a sent one. And so he summons these 12. And what's the significance of 12? Why 12? Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? Why did he send out 12 apostles? Well, it, it points to, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, points to the nation and the people of Israel. This nation was descended from 12 patriarchs, from these 12 sons that this nation multiplied. And we have the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And now the church, the true Israel, is being restored through these 12 apostles. So we see that this foundation for a restored people is laid right here with these 12 apostles, these 12 sent ones. See in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The 12 points to the future restoration of Israel. And so they're saying in the Old Testament, this nation that was birthed out of 12 patriarchs, God's chosen people, they continuously fell, continuously went away from God. Now, through Christ, God is going to restore Israel, and one will be an Israelite, not by flesh, but by faith. Not through circumcision of the flesh, but through circumcision of the heart. And so we see this 12, Jesus summons the 12, because what he's getting ready to do is really big. Projecting that foundation, that restoration, saying there were 12, and now I'm going to send out 12. So now, after Jesus summons them, we're still in the first verse here, verse 7, he sends them. So right from the get-go, we see Jesus' grace, he summoned the 12, and began to send them out in pairs. Okay, so up to this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples have just been spectators. It's been a spectator sport to be a follower of Jesus. He's doing all kinds of magnificent miracles. It'd be kind of fun to sit there and watch these things. And now we see that he begins to send them. To this point, he hasn't sent them. But if you are a disciple, you are sent. And so now we see Jesus sending these Disciples, and if, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are sent. Answer that question from the beginning, whether it's your family, your friends, your workplace, your neighborhood, your community, you are sent. Disciples sow seeds. We're called to, to share the gospel. We can't force it to fall on good ground, but we're called to share the good news, to sow the seeds 
and to make disciples. So for those that it does fall on good ground on, we have a responsibility to make disciples. It's one of the reasons why we encourage um, you guys to continue to get together outside of the gathering here. It's why we try to make avenues for that with the Sunday gathering and with community group and soon to come Bible studies. We're trying to encourage the body not just to gather, but also to make disciples. And so Jesus didn't send them out one by one. That would, that would seem to be like, if, if, so I'm in business, right? The most efficient thing to do would be to take the individuals and say, how can we cover the most ground? And that'd be by sending them out one by one. But he doesn't do that. He sends them out two by two. So the question is, why would he do that? I mean, it's literally half the amount of ground that you otherwise could have covered. Jesus, you gave them authority. Isn't, isn't one enough? If they have your authority, can't that one just go? Jesus is making a point. And that point, it's at least two points, I should say. And the first one is that we need one another. We've already covered that. We need one another. That's why we gather here. That's why we're reminded of the, the gathering every Sunday. Because we're fallen. We are sinful individuals who are easily drawn away toward other things. So we need to be reminded of this gospel. It's just humble of us to, to recognize our need for it. And so we gather on Sundays. But we also we don't only want to gather well, but we also want to scatter well. And so we want to have instances throughout the week where we can continue to remind one another and make disciples and there come in the community groups and the future Bible studies. But also, so Jesus is not only one saying that don't go alone. Don't, don't try to be a solo Christian. It's not going to go well for you. He says you need others. But then he's also saying that he has authority, and that's a claim. And we've, we've talked about this in the past, but Deuteronomy talks about how in order to establish a claim, there needs to be at least two. And so as these disciples, as these apostles go out and make the claim that Jesus has authority, it needs to be established. And so by having more than just one, that claim can be established in that culture. And so Jesus, because he has authority, that's what they're trying to establish, his authority. Because he has authority, he's able to give authority. And that would be enough to establish that authority is the two people. However, he gives an additional thing. He gives them he gives them authority to perform miracles to further affirm the fact that Jesus has authority. So Jesus is equipping those whom he sends. He's saying, go with this message, say this, and because there are two of you, it should already have enough ground. But if that's not enough, here's, some, here's authority to perform miracles. And R.C. Sproul points out that the fundamental purposes of these miracles are to authenticate the agents of revelation. So it's to authenticate the message. In the Old Testament, you'd see that with, they say if, if there's a prophet and he makes a claim, the way you can find out if it's true is if that thing actually takes place. And so if someone says Jesus has authority and there's no exercise of authority, then it would lead some of the hearers to say, we're waiting. Let's see if it's true. So Jesus says, all right, I'm going I'm to give these sent ones authority to perform these miracles, to authenticate the message that I actually do have authority. And so because all authority has been given to Jesus, he now instructs his people. He doesn't just send them, but he instructs 
them. And so we are now in that third point where Jesus instructs his people. And I want to read verses 8 through 11 because this is where Jesus' instruction comes into place. So starting in verse 8, he, Jesus, instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. And if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So as followers of Jesus, we are sent. If you are in Christ, you are sent. However, you're not just sent to to go off and try to figure it out on your own. In his grace, God gives us instruction. The great commission is Jesus saying, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've instructed you, everything I've taught you. And so there's a, an instruction that comes along with being sent. We don't just go without having any kind of direction as to what it looks like to go. So in his grace, God has given us his word. That's the primary way that we are instructed. And then he's also given us one another to encourage each other to point back to the word. So Jesus provides this instruction. Jesus not only sends us, he summons us, then he sends us, and then he instructs us. That's the normal pattern in the life of a Christian. We're called, we're sent, and we're instructed. We're not called to, to go solo. But what does Jesus instruct his disciples? He says, take nothing for the road except a staff, a belt, sandals, and a shirt. Seems strange. Like why, why so little? Why not take some extra bread or some extra water? Like that would seem logical, right? And seem prudent. But he says, take nothing except a staff. And, and Matthew, in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew says, don't take a staff. So again, we see what would seem to be on the service level, a conflicting account. What we have to understand is that a staff in that day had two, two meanings, two purposes. So essentially, um, they would typically have two. One would be a walking stick, and that one typically had a, a curve. So if you had sheep, you would use it to kind of bring them back into the fold. And there was another one, a sturdier one, that was a rod. And this was for beating predators off. So there are two. We see this in Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so when Matthew says, don't bring a staff, he's referring to the offensive, the rod. Don't bring that. When Mark talks about it, he's saying, you can have a walking stick. Sure, go ahead. Use that walking stick. But he says, don't take bread, a travel bag, money, or even an extra shirt. It'd be like packing everything for a weekend trip, laying it all out on your bed, and just walking away from it with your toothbrush in your pocket and saying, I'm good to go. It'd be, it seems strange. However, there's a reason. And so during that day, there was a, a group of people called the cynics. And what they did was they practiced this form of living called asceticism, which meant that they were protesting against the the extra or the indulgences of the day by saying, we're not going to have anything other than the clothes on our back and food for the day. And it was a, a form of protest. They would avoid all forms of indulgence. Now, when Jesus 
says don't take these things, he's not endorsing asceticism. He's not endorsing the way that the cynics would live. But rather, he's telling his disciples, instead of protesting, I'm telling you to have a greater allegiance to me, to the Father, to trust even on greater terms. Don't take extra stuff. Trust that I'm going to provide for you. So he tells them, don't take any of these things that you might otherwise put your faith in, your trust in. Trust me as I send you out. And then he says to accept the help and the hospitality of those whom God sends their way. He says, if anyone lets you into their house, he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. If you have all the supplies that you need, then it's going to be easy for you to not see the ways that I take care of you. So there are going to be people who accept you into their house. There are going to be people who because I've put it on their hearts, there are going to be people who help you see that as my gracious hand. And so there are people in each of our lives, you could probably think of a few, who have been kind. I opened this up with seeing some of the kindness we've seen in this congregation. There are those that God has graciously used to be a blessing in your life. And it's helpful to be reminded of that and just to thank God for the kindness that he has shown in giving you people in your life who have loved you and cared for you. But even more so, the things that he tells them to take, the staff, the belt, the sandals, the cloak, or the shirt, these things are to point back. We talked about Israel earlier. This is pointing back to the institution of the Passover meal, where the Israelites were told to eat the Passover meal with their cloaks on, tucked into their belt, their sandals on their feet, and their walking stick ready to go because they were going to be ready to, to leave the nation of Egypt in the Exodus. And as they left the nation of Egypt, this Exodus, God established a people. He brought them out of bondage. And now we see Jesus preparing his apostles. These are the four things to take. He says, there's going to be an exodus-like restoration. I'm going to free you from bondage. You're going to take that claim, that authority, that people should be let go of sin and the bondage that comes with it. I'm giving you authority. Take these four things just like my people did in the exodus. But it also pointed at the, the haste and the significance of the event. So to have those things, to not have a shoulder bag, to not have a travel bag or money, the, the exodus, they did all those things because they had to leave quickly. They had to go. And so pointing back to that, he's also referencing some haste that is going to be taking place. And there, there's an urgency on the mission of a Christian to be going out and sharing the gospel. Nearly 150,000 people every single day die. Most of which are separated from God and they enter into an eternity separated from God. And so as the people of God who have this message of restoration, we have an urgency, we have a haste to where we need to get this message to others. We are called to share the good news. The disciples went with very little because of that haste. They also went with very little, and it would be easy to say that they weren't well-equipped this is their first time being sent out. They don't have material. They don't have experience. So something for us to, to be reminded of is you don't have to be a professional Christian to share the gospel. 
You don't have to have a seminary degree to engage in discipleship. These are things that every follower of Jesus is called to. And he tells them in verse 10 to, to stay there. When people welcome you into their home, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. He's telling them, be rooted. Be invested. If you get to a town and um, one of the less nice homes, they welcome you into that. And then the next day, one of the uh, more wealthy individuals say, oh, I didn't know you were here. You should, you should come to my house. He, sa- he says, no, look, stay. Be rooted. Be invested. I have placed you where I have placed you for a reason. Be content. Don't be restless. Faithfully participate and trust that, that I have placed you there and that I am working in ways that maybe you may not even be able to see. And we are all uniquely placed at places like work, certain homes. We have relationships. God has uniquely placed us in the city that we're in for the sake of being rooted and invested and faithfully participating for as long as he has us here. Whether it's a short period of time or a long period of time, he says, while you're there, be rooted, stay there. He says, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, this is now verse 11, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, that seems kind of weird, right? All right, you don't want me here? Shake my cloak a little bit. Take that. Seems like a slightly weird thing to do. But uh, James Edwards helps us understand it. He says that this, this shaking of the dust, is a searing indictment. Since Jews traveling outside Palestine were required to shake themselves free of dust when returning home, lest they pollute the Holy Land. So this shaking of the dust was what you did so that you wouldn't pollute the place you were going into. He says they... If they don't accept you, if they reject you and the message that I've sent you with, then shake the dust. Show them that this relationship is severed. You had your opportunity, and all right, I'm going to move on. It was a searing indictment against those who would reject. And for all those who would reject the gospel, there's a much greater indictment coming. I would encourage you that if you're seeking today, if you're not sure what you believe, talk to somebody. I plan on being up here after the service for a few minutes, so feel free to come up to me. Ask me a question. I'll have all the answers, promise you. However, I'd love to talk, talk with you about whatever it is that you may have questions about. I encourage you. <clears throat> take time to hear the gospel, and don't be quick to reject it. So Jesus doesn't just instruct his people like a never-ending classroom. It'd be um, the world wouldn't change real quick if his disciples never actually went out. So it's not a never-ending classroom, but in fact now he uses his people. And so we see that in verses 12 through 13. They say, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. So they preached, they proclaimed that people should repent. They're called to take the message, like we've been talking about this whole time. It's called to take the message, and they sowed seeds. They called people to turn from their sin. That's what repentance means, to confess that sin and to turn away from it. So that's the call on the Christian, to call people to repentance. But also this repentance, it's not just a side thing. Repentance is necessary in the life of a Christian. It's necessary for, for salvation. If you never come to the point 
where you recognize that your sin has separated you from God. You never come to the point where you want to turn from that sin and embrace Christ. Then you will not be saved. Repentance is necessary, but also repentance isn't just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. The, the more you grow in your understanding of the, the holiness of God, the more you'll grow in your understanding of your own sin, how sinful you are. And so there are things that maybe previously the Holy Spirit didn't reveal to you as being sinful, but as you've grown in your walk with the Lord, you've recognized, oh, this, this too probably isn't pleasing to God. And there's an opportunity to say, Lord, forgive me, and Holy Spirit, help me. Help me walk faithfully in ways that resemble my Savior. So as we grow in our knowledge of God's holiness, we'll also grow in our own knowledge of sinfulness, and repentance will be an ongoing thing. Repentance is an ongoing thing in the life of a Christian. So is confessing sin and turning away from sin, is that, is that a consistent rhythm in your life? Is repentance something that would be characteristic of your, let's say, if you were to take a, an inventory, if somebody were to be watching you, would repentance be something that they would say, yep, that person, they do consistently confess their sin and try to fight against it. However, it also just wasn't preaching that the apostles were sent to do. They also brought healing. And so the apostolic mission, and this is for all of us, is one of word and deed. We are called to proclaim the good news and we're called to do good works. Christ said, they will know you by your love for one another. And he says in Matthew 7 that you will know them by their fruit. There is a, a action that needs to take place. So that's why, again, we want to gather well, where we hear the instruction from God's word and uh, we hear the gospel proclaimed, we remind each other of that, but then we also want to scatter well in our respective neighborhoods so that we can do the work of sharing the good news and seeing it land on fertile soil and seeing disciples be made. These miracles that the apostles do, they anointed many sick, they healed them. These are to, to authenticate the message that Jesus has authority. Jesus is the one who has authority to heal, he is the one who has authority to restore. And deep down, that's, that's what we really want, right? Is ultimate healing, ultimate restoration. If we didn't see that in, in 2020 with the presidential campaign, we see it every four years. Like, this is the guy, this is the gal who's going to bring healing and restoration to our nation. They've got this plan. It's a six-step plan. And uh, people, we get all excited about our candidate. And then if we are in fact excited about our candidate, we tend to tell others about that candidate. And then if we're truly for that candidate, we get out and we go vote for that candidate. We so badly want that healing and that restoration. But in the same way, if we are truly in Christ, we are called to place ourselves under his instruction and call others to do the same. If we are in Christ, we are called to go. And so are you seeking opportunities around you? Are you asking God to provide opportunities around you? One of the things uh, that we do in our house as Finley gets ready for bed, um, we go through this big routine. Okay, it used to be a small routine. Finley, in her own way, has added many things. And so what used to take 10 minutes now takes like 45, maybe longer. 
And so we are going through that routine. And one of the parts we try to do is try to read a book with her. And she's been pretty excited because recently she got a few new books. And then afterward, we'll try to pray with her. And then there's a whole spew of things after that, too. But <laughs> we were sitting there trying to pray with her. Um, and is after looking at the, the books. And she likes to act like she can read. And she's like, oh, I'm reading my book. I'm reading my book. Like, nah, you're really not. You're just flipping pages, but that's okay. And we start to try to pray. And we say, all right, close your eyes. Like, just trying to teach her, be still. I'm like, just set the book down. Be still. Let's go to God. And we start praying, and I hear pages flipping. I'm like, hey, Finn, pause the prayer. Hey, Finn, let's put the book down. Let's, let's pray. Let's close our eyes. And she goes, no, I see better with them open. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> you probably do. <laughs> but we will see opportunities. We will see opportunities around us for sharing this gospel if we keep our eyes open. If we are asking God, Lord, provide me with the opportunity to share the gospel with my neighbor. Provide me with the opportunity to share the gospel with this coworker who seems to be far from you. Give me opportunities and then keep your eyes open. There are opportunities all around us. Let's have eyes to see them. So are we trusting the Lord? Are we rooted? Are we content? Are we trusting him with today? Are we trusting him with tomorrow? There's all kinds of things that can bring in care and bring in anxiety, bring in worry. Let's trust God today with the needs as the apostles went out with very little. Let's trust that God's going to take care of us today and take care of us tomorrow. If you're seeking purpose in your life, that's a really um, popular thing. Now I want to do something in my life that makes a mark. I want to, I want to participate in a noble cause. I want, to, I want my life to be used in a purposeful way. Look, there is no greater purpose than to usher people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So if you want that purpose, then engage in this work. Any follower of Jesus is summoned, is sent, is instructed, and is used. And the reason that we can say those things with confidence, because we see it in the text, but also because the Son of God was summoned. There's this Latin term, this theological term called the pactum salutis. And basically what it is, is it's saying that the Trinity agreed to work out this plan of salvation from the beginning of time. So there's a summoning of the Son. He was sent to the cross. He was instructed by the law. You have to perfectly fulfill this law. And he did on our behalf. And then he was used to justify anyone who would repent of their sin and embrace this good news. His perfect righteousness, his filling the law, could be attributed to you. And your sin where you've fallen and, and fallen short and you have, just, you have judgment coming your way, that sin could be attributed to Christ on the cross where it's paid for. So I would encourage you this morning, to embrace this good news. And if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are called to go. It is incompatible to be a Christian who is not sent. So go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. We thank you 
for showing us these things in your word, that we are summoned, sent, instructed, and used. We thank you for allowing us to participate in that. You could do this all without us. We recognize that you are powerful enough to do that, but you have kindly brought us in, and we praise you for that. Help us to faithfully go into our respective places this week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.